I like to shift sometimes. We beat on the bureaucracy a lot, but the innovation community do all the same things we accuse the bureaucracy of. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, a podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane and cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. Uh, we've got kind of a walking legend with us today, uh, Mr. Brian Kroger, CEO of Rise 8, close friend, close change agent partner, sort of in the industry, absolute force of nature. And I think one of the leading voices on some of the technical nature of the challenges we're facing. So super excited to unpack that and uh, grateful for being here. So thanks, Brian. And uh, tell people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, like you said, I'm the founder and CEO of Rise8. Uh, I've been doing this now for about four years. Prior to that, I was active duty Air Force for 10 years. For seven years, I was a targeteer. And uh, I like to tell people I used really terrible software. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny on the one hand, but when you're in targeting, you know, GovTech in general, like sometimes we talk about how bad things are and the bureaucracy and we laugh. But when we're talking defense, especially critical missions in defense, I saw missions fail, like bad dudes get away, high value targets. Um, I saw good people die, innocent people die, not just soldiers, but like innocent civilians, all because of what I thought was bad software. So uh, last three years, I career changed to acquisitions. Who changes from targeteer to acquisitions is pretty abrupt. But uh, And then I called Enrique, who you know really well. Um, my first day on the job, literally, I called DIUX. I was like, hey, you've got this OTA. Uh, let's start something to, to fix this targeting software. And Enrique was already on the way with his journey. And we came together with Jeremiah Sanders, the AOC program, and started Kessel Run. And I served as the COO there for several years before going and starting Rise 8 because I want to help everybody in the DoD be able to accomplish what we accomplished at Kessel Run. So it's an awesome story. And one, one, I mean, you and I have shared this over beer. It resonates quite a bit. Uh, a former guy on the ground with terrible technology trying to execute the targets you guys would send to us. I think, I think people forget that sometimes, you know, antiquated technology or desynchronized sort of capability it's not just, hey, it's a macro issue. It's going to cost the Pentagon more to do something or it's going to be slower. The very, very sort of tactical implication is, you know, something that is historically only accomplished in a small window in time, like a successful kill capture, a, a hostage rescue, a raid, whatever it might be. Those are very precise and a, a degraded capability impacts that precision, ultimately, you know, decreasing likelihood of mission success. And that over and over. there's a compounding sort of impact there that I don't think a lot of folks really understand, which is going to take me to the, the first question, which is you, you've got a really interesting career having been sort of in the, the targeting, the sort of operator side of the house, in the acquisition, the procurement side of the house, hands-on keyboard, sort of technical side of the house. How do you help folks from those different tribes sit down at a table and understand? Because it almost feels like, you know, you're back, you're downrange in Afghanistan and you've got a tribal elder who speaks Pashto. You've got one who speaks Farsi. You've got, you know, your state department guy only speaks English. 
and you're trying to negotiate something, no one speaks the same language. How do you bridge that gap? And how can we help more folks in the government bridge gaps like that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You have to get everybody aligned on the outcomes that we care about. And that sounds simple and straightforward. And you might even think that we are, you know, everybody's great Americans, right? Everybody serving in government is trying to do the right thing, but it's easy to get lost in the sub outcomes that have been assigned to you and not have the sight of what the real outcome is. And then when you insert bureaucracy and all these other learned behaviors, you can be doing the things that are supposed to be contributing to the end outcome, but it never actually does. And so, you know, I was uh, infamous, or I don't know if I would do this in retrospect because it made me a lot of enemies, but I would walk into meetings at Hanscom and people would be talking about ridiculous things. And I would be like, you're getting people killed. And I would tell stories and I would, I would talk about the software because I was very, fortunately, I had, or unfortunately, had used the software that all the people in the room were building, whether it was AOC or Kiss Chaos or all, all these different programs, mission planning systems. And, uh, you know, I, I think it was shocking to them. They had never even heard from their users. And um, that's step one is, is just getting everybody aligned on what's the real outcome here and how are we actually doing in achieving that. We can't compare our intentions to outcomes. I have this rule, especially about innovation, because innovators do this as well. They have all the best intentions in the world too, but we're only going to compare outcomes to outcomes. And that's why I talk a lot about prod. Prod or it didn't happen. Yeah. So it's interesting when you talk about sort of outcomes to outcomes, it's sort of the sub outcomes, right? The, the sort of corporate side of me is like, hey, we're talking about incentives, right? How do we actually, and whether it's OKRs or your, however you're running sort of your, your MBO program, mm -hmm. how do you get what is a wildly bureaucratic sort of process in gov? And sometimes it's predefined if we're being honest, right? There isn't, there isn't flexibility. So you end up with a team that's like, Hey, I'm doing what I'm assigned to do. Like, here's my PD. Here's how I'm assessed. If it's in the private sector, like here are my incentives that like might have a monetary impact to my like quality of life for my family. How do you get folks to start thinking about and changing those behaviors that might be perceived as stepping out of the line and maybe an unsafe sort of political, political step? That, that part's a little harder because it can be unsafe. Uh, one of the big problems we have to fix is uh, the aspect of psychological safety, which I think is a term that gets abused uh, right now in our culture, but uh, being able to do the right thing without fear or what you believe that is the right thing without fear uh, is really important. And uh, you know, there was that Project Aristotle study that Google did, and they have these five characteristics of high-performing teams. And the military is, especially the DOD, not just GovTech, but like DOD in particular is so good at, you know, purpose and meaning and uh, dependability. But the one where we really struggle and it offsets all the rest is that aspect of psychological safety. So that's one. And I don't know how to deal with that sometimes. I think you need people, those rare John Boyd types, Air Force hero. You know, he has this famous role called to be or to do. You know, you can choose if you're going to be somebody or do something. And if you choose to be somebody, you'll get promoted and you'll get, uh, you know, all the best assignments and, and the accolades. Uh, and oftentimes, if you choose to do something, you know, your superiors will hate you. You might get fired, court-martialed, <laughs> uh, those kinds of things. You're putting a lot at risk, but you have to do that for the mission. So I think it goes back to still step one. If you can really get people aligned on the mission, people will throw away a lot when you start talking about lives. And uh, I, know, I know for me, it was, it was very real. It's not just talk. Like sometimes it can feel corny to people who aren't, uh, you know, in the culture or have, especially haven't been in operations. But 
for me, it was very real. Like I would think about often that I was risking my career uh, and, and a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and I just remembered like those people that I saw die in Kunduz Hospital in Afghanistan. Um, or, uh, the times that I saw mission failure dudes that had, you know, we had a chance to finally get them and they had killed so many Americans and we lost them all because of bad software. So that's, that's one. Um, but I still feel like that's kind of hand wavy. I will say the other thing that can be really important is there's a certain amount of, and I think I, I like to shift sometimes we beat on the bureaucracy a lot, but the innovation community do all the same things we accuse the bureaucracy of. So Here's an example of a bad incentive I've seen uh, in an innovation organization, and that was AFWorks. Early on in AFWorks, the Air Force, to its credit, has taken the CIBR program far further than the other services. Completely transformed it. In great ways, and I've benefited from a lot of those, but they're not without criticism. And one area that I would criticize is the initial KPIs that were set up by Air Force, most senior Air Force leadership was number of bets. Number of bets is not a good metric. Even in VC, like, it's just, you know, oh, we're going to make all these small bets and I just want to see a number. I need this many contracts awarded. Um, and those people were doing that. And they're like, hey, I'm doing what I was asked. Senior leadership said, award all these contracts. I awarded all these contracts. Pat myself on the back. Um, but was that actually leading to the outcomes that you, which might not have been operational outcomes when you're in the R&D space, you do have a lot of failure. Right, and that's okay. That's that's part of the experimentation process. But um, yeah, get, getting those outcomes in place is really important. So I think a certain amount of optimism is required. Um, I talk about this thing I call Mission OS, Mission Operating System, but it's kind of a double entendre or double meaning of the OS is optimistic skepticism, because I feel like in this space, you know, one thing's always true: if you don't believe that something can be changed, some bureaucratic process, some nightmare like the ATO process, which I want to dig into, I think super relevant to both of us. Uh, if you believe it can't be changed, you'll be right. It's the, it's the paradox of cynicism. Uh, as soon as you say something can't be done, you will be right. Now saying it can be done doesn't mean that it can no, be done, but, it's a, it's but it a gives good, you a starting point. It's a point. good reminder that, especially as a leader of something, you've got you've to believe. And to your point, like there should be, I forget who told me this. He said, you know, every, every sort of effective leader has that view and the belief that you can change something. And about 80% of their energy is used on that. Mm-hmm. And about 20% is the heretic who's like, okay, maybe this isn't the right way. Maybe there's a better way. Maybe and it's challenging sort of almost the micro sort of innovations while on sort of that macro, the belief of, hey, this can be done while orienting the team against it. That's a challenge. That's hard to do. Yeah. I think a lot of people that aren't in very bureaucratic or, or challenging type environments get away with a lot more optimism, not being paired with skepticism. But when you're trying to create change, especially in these large, and I mean, DOD is the largest bureaucracy on earth by every measure, you have to have that skepticism paired with it. You have to question everything all along the way. So I believed that the ATO process could be changed, but we questioned everything, not just about the existing process, but even about the ideas we were putting forward about how to fix it. Yeah. And I mean, we can riff into that right now. I mean, we're, we're living that world where, you know, I think we're continually trying to push the envelope on and push the envelope sounds risky. And I don't mean it like that, but challenge preconceived notions and challenge the, the macro sort of theology of it's always been done this way mm-hmm. into a, not to use a Danny Holtzman sort of like, yes, if, um, uh, 
but kind of. Yeah. <laughs> like a Danielsman. Yes, if on, hey, like there are ways to to still have the same QAQC and same control levers and same, but the scale, sort of what type of volume you can put through pipes and how you're abstracting away security and some of the control and some of the risk. It's just, it is a, like a labyrinth of very complicated policies that often aren't even followed, if we're being honest. For all of the opinionation around the ATO process, a lot of it is just whoever's sort of sitting in, in an AO or a Scotch Air and it's just driving it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, so much to unpack on this one. I will say, uh, without going into too many of the details, the one of the events that prompted me leaving targeting related to software, there was actually a software fix that was, it had been identified seven years prior. So I tracked it. I would track the requirements matrix. It went into the requirements matrix seven years prior. Went in development. Development had been completed for almost two years. It was sitting on the shelf waiting to go through the ATO process. Now, uh, for the uninitiated, the ATO process is meant to reduce risk, right? We're, we're trying to reduce risk. The problem is, is like the kinds of risks we're measuring, it, I would say over-rotates on cybersecurity. Now, that being said, like it, it is the most prominent risk that we face today. But then it's also like an old view of cybersecurity that doesn't account for, first and foremost, the largest vulnerability in your system today is time. But even if I put that aside, at the end of the day, it's all meant to reduce operational risk. But often it's the thing most contributing to operational risk. Like, and, and I would go into assessors' offices and early, Danny, before you know, CATO was a thing and we were still talking through the concepts, I would say that the way that we're doing ATOs today is getting people killed. Going back to that, like we're all going to align on this. Your job is not to run this cybersecurity assessment per se. Your job is to make sure we get capabilities into the hands of warfighters safely and sustainably. And like, how can we do that as quick as possible? And he was one of the first people, to his credit, to align on that goal. And then we figured out, all right, how do we do this fast without sacrificing? It's an equilibrium. Quality. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say. I mean, you're effectively managing the relationship between like speed and security or operational mm -hmm. value, operational need and security. And that there's an acceptable threshold. There's, you know, a deviation outside of the frisk and you're trying to optimize that relationship versus to your point, running a same checklist every single time and having it be like, it meets these, you know, 432 sort of yes, no questions or hey, all right, does it fall in an acceptable sort of baseline as evidenced by sort of this X, Y axis? And we're getting to the latter, but it's still a pretty small constituency. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's this unfortunate reality that there's a, uh, sometimes a smaller than I would like overlap between security and compliance. And um, that said, first I will say, and I think everybody that's in the government space needs to really know and understand if you're trying to have this conversation the research on this topic is really clear that there's actually no trade-off between speed and security. So when you look at like the state of DevOps report put out by Dora, really encapsulated in the book Accelerate, which I recommend all government leaders in particular read that book and understand, is that uh, the faster you go with the right practices, it actually becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. Um, that security gets better and a number of other quality outcomes, um, and there doesn't have to be that trade-off. Now. Compliance, unfortunately, because sometimes it's not a value-added task or can be in, in organizations, depending on how it's implemented, 
can start to interfere with speed without producing corresponding valuable outcomes, right? There's not value-added tasks. And so I could have taken one approach was like, screw RMF. There's a bunch of stuff in there that doesn't make sense. The truth is when I started digging into it, I actually didn't believe that. Um, but even if that were the case, my general approach is when I'm starting something like a change in DOD that involves policy change, I do the thing first and just embrace the suck. And then I go ask for policy change. And I think that's really important, you know, and, and then what we found by doing that was actually that we didn't need policy changes, funny enough. And I think that will happen over and over again. Everybody talks about reform, acquisition reform, RMF reform. Bring up the acquisition reform. It's like, screw reform. reform. They've already got those. Everyone's got the authorities they need. We're not using them right. Yeah. Yes. All right. So on that note, right, talking about speed, talking about sort of policy change, talking about the connectivity between users and builders and sort of program managers and funders and all of that. OG, it's sort of the software factory revolution. You know, a software factory has sort of, I think we can confidently say today it means everything and nothing at the same time. <laughs> like I have no idea what a software factory means anymore. Yeah. Um, unfortunate. But yeah, I mean, we'll get back. The pendulum swings, right? Yeah. It's software factory is like, I don't know, it's the new crypto. Yeah. Um, but sort of popping the hood off of it. Like I'd love to just kind of hear you know, the core tenants or the principles or sort of the foundation, you know, cause there's going to be somebody out there who's listening. Who's like, Hey, all right. Like the solution to this problem is a software factory and you know, rounds already left the barrel, right? It's budgeted for there's thinking, how should they be thinking about it? Like, what are some of the ethos? What's it really like sort of under the hood building something like that from scratch? You can kind of take it in a couple different directions, but would be yeah. really interested to hear the perspective. Yeah, we'd have to first say like what all I include in there because unfortunately, uh, and I think Air Force leadership for a while drove a lot of this, started equating software factory with platform or platform plus tool chain if they don't include that in the platform definition. And that's not all, all what we intended at Kessel Run. And be very clear, like Kessel Run brought this term back into existence. It apparently had been used in the DOD a long time ago. And the history of how we ended up using it was Eric Schoonover, who was the Air Force Digital Service rep. Uh, he, he was really great ideas guy. He had just come out of an embattled OCX. Great story to read about. Um, it's also featured in Jen Palka's new book that I recommend everybody read, Recoding America. Tremendous book. Yes. Uh, especially if you want to get into this space heavily. I, I thought I knew this space well and I like every page was a page turner. I was learning new things. But his idea was like, we need to use a term for this that is palatable to the people that think in hardware. Um, so like factory was the natural result. And then everybody on the ground at Kessel Run was like, that sounds terrible. Who wants to work in a factory? And where we kind of landed as a team is I was like, hey, we've been talking about Toyota production system a lot. And I use a lot of Toyota examples. Um, Numi is one of my favorite ones about culture transformation. And I was like, what if we think about this more like the Toyota production system, which is not a building or a building plus an assembly line. When they talk about it, that's, that's just an outcropping of their culture. So they would say culture drives process, drives technology. And we talk about the Toyota production system, it's always evolving, but it always is based on where their culture is at at any given moment. And based on those outcomes they're aligned on, they have processes and then their technology is a reflection of that. So a software factory to me is putting together all of the things required to build and deliver software to end users. And that, that includes acquisitions, like all these support functions, as well as, you know, not just the platform and the tool chain, but really even more important, 
the people building those things and the people building the software that's getting deployed on top of them. So um, to me, a platform is just a component of a software factory, but putting those things together in the best way to create value and minimize waste, that should be the goal that we're all striving towards. And I hear, uh, I hear well, two things on this. One, and I'll come back to the actual point. But first time I met Eric Schoonover, right? Have a nice, huge, awesome meeting. Like my mind's blown. I was like, man, I got to connect to this guy on, on LinkedIn. So go to find him on LinkedIn. It's a picture of him holding the cat. His job title is world's greatest lover. And I was like, <laughs> goddamn American hero. <laughs> I, was I will just forever say. be on that man's team. Yeah. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and uh, it was, that was hilarious. But on sort of the point about it not just being platform, I think one of the, the themes I've heard throughout is people sort of over-rotating on a specific piece of technology or a specific process and not having the, the appropriate sort of appreciation for the amount that the human plays in this role. And that it's not a push button, get software, push button, secure software, push button, run software. There are people building every aspect of that and running and supporting. And the way you're going to get an organization to, to move at speed and scale is by investing in those people and the culture and the operating system to use your, your sort of mission OS. I think there's a human sort of organizational side of that that oftentimes gets overlooked as we're talking about sort of like the glitter and the rage of like the next cool tech. Is that a fair kind of summation? Yeah, and it's funny because it very much mirrors what happened with Toyota in America uh, because it's a very American way to look at the problem. Um, very Taylorist type of mindset. And in fact, GM tried to copy Toyota over and over again. They would go into their plants and copy everything. Toyota didn't even care because they knew instinctively, like, that's not what matters. You can copy my technology all day long. And in America, would a great example is Toyota has an on-down cord. We pull the on-down cord, the entire assembly line stops and a manager at this, comes out and helps you with the issue that you're having. So America installed on-down cords in their factory floor. Nobody ever pulled them because when you pulled the on-down cord- right, I got yelled at, right? You got yelled yep. at. Yeah. So like, uh, it, it, it's a perfect example of, of uh, you know, kind of our overarching American culture, which has a lot of really great aspects to it, kind of struggling in certain aspects. It is a very factory mindset. And I think we haven't moved forward from scientific management and Taylorism uh, in our management ranks. And that's especially the case in a lot of military leadership and management. Yeah. I will. Uh, I can't, I can't miss the opportunity as a former Alvin Toffler disciple to say that sounds very industrial age <laughs> in terms of how yeah. people think it, but it is. I mean, that's what the Tofflers talked about as a second wave sort of problem is where like everything kind of flowed up and that manager really controlled everything and all information flowed through there and all decisions flowed through there and all control versus sort of a more traditional, almost like a Buddhism, like the waterfall flows a different way. But that's like philosophically out of reach for a lot of how we've built America. And that requires a, a pretty material sort of mental model transformation. Yeah. Yeah. And where our culture really thrives is, is in producing innovations, right? And so um, there's this interesting thing of, of figuring out how to meet in the middle because Toyota at some point, um, at various points actually, uh, has come forward and said things like, uh, you know, they've lost the innovation spirit and they want to harness some of the American aspects of, of culture. And I think there's this really great strategist. His name's uh, Simon Wardley. Uh, he's a European um, tech guru he has this great talk called Crossing the River by Feeling the Stones. 
And in it, he, he talks about his, he has a book about it too called Wardley Mapping. But essentially, uh, one of the things that's really important in this Wardley map that he produces, uh, which is supposed to give you like a maps, maps have meaning, right? So a lot of times we call things like a roadmap, but it's not actually a map. So he gets really technical about what a map is. And then when he maps out your business landscape, uh, there's these three categories that constantly appear and it's pioneer, settler, town planner is kind of the framework that he uses to think about it. And there are several other similar ones. Um, but I think a lot of times that commodity mindset of producing widgets really well, lean manufacturing, et cetera, appears on the right with the town planners. And so we'll over-rotate on that for a while. And then we'll over-rotate on the innovators, the pioneers, right? And we go back and forth between those to various results, but we never really focus in my mind, at least I haven't seen it. Somebody can correct me, a focus on those settlers. And um, those are the people that bridge the gap. And I think if we have a settler-based culture, it's easy to move things from pioneer to town planner and uh, with a lot less tension as well. And so I think that's an aspect that's missing as well. So if I were really getting technical about how I want my factory to look, and, and probably a mistake that we made at Kessel Run was not figuring out how to have that balance. Safi Bacall in Loon Shots, he calls it state transfer. Um, you have to love your artists and your soldiers equally and figuring out how to manage the state transfer between them. And uh, that's the next struggle. Yeah. I mean, that's a neat, a neat framing, especially sort of the state transfer model, which leads into sort of the, the last question. This is the, the small degree of structure I put into this. Um, and the last question is always king for a day. So you've got a crazy impressive career you know, in uniform, out of uniform, all around sort of defense tech. You and I have talked, you know, here and beyond about everything from ledge and sort of the regulatory to how the building works, to how private companies are engaging in private sector and private capital. You were sort of king for a day, snap your fingers, make a change. And it worked, right? So no caveat. I'm like, oh, I don't know if it'll stick. Like it worked. What are you changing and why? Probably change OPM. Uh, I, I would make it so that I could hire whoever I wanted at whatever kind of salaries I wanted. I wouldn't want this authority for everybody because I do think it could be abused. So like, it's kind of a cop out. Maybe uh, a so corollary. Brian Kroger gets unlimited power from OPM. <laughs> Everyone else can shut up the color. <laughs> hiring, hi, specifically on hiring and salaries. Look, we, we'd have to create structure around it. Um, so, and I, I, it would be a long answer if I went into all the structure I think we would need to create around that. But the idea is like, I need to be able to hire tech experts um, and grow them too. Cause I think we talk a lot about outsourcing change, but you can't hire your way out of this problem to grow your way out of this problem. So at some point we need the context of all these GovTech folks or legacy, if they're not even tech folks, they have a ton of context that we need to move forward into the future. So that, and then like a corresponding change, just because it takes so long to grow that talent is I would eliminate the distinction of personal services contracts and I would allow the government to hire contractors in a personal services capacity with relative ease. I think that's the number one thing that's limiting the ability of software factories and organizations fulfilling specific aspects of the software factory, we'll call it, is it is really hard to hire contractors. We don't know what outcomes we need to achieve because we're still in the pioneer, like moving into settler phase. So you can't put requirements or even outcomes sometimes on contract. You're stuck with TNM, but you don't have the advantage of working in a personal services capacity where I could be like, hey, your dude sucks. Or, hey, I need that girl to move to a different role, whatever it might be. Like, you need that level of control and you just don't have it. And so I think people is holding us back way more than acquisitions reform, whatever. It's HR. 
HR is our biggest challenge. And that's one easy change I would make. I love that. It's a killer answer. And I mean, it follows, follows the theme, sort of everything we've talked about today. Look, I think I learn, I learn more from you every time we talk. So I'm eternally grateful for the time we get to spend together, but also for you spending some time here with us today. Yeah. Um, so thanks again, brother. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. Stay weird.